0: Uh, We are in Mark chapter 7. We're going to have a change of place within our uh, sermon or uh, reading of the text today. So uh, we're picking up in verse 24, and I'm on the wrong page. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, And the demon, gone. Let's pray. Father, uh, you know that I am tired and distracted this morning. Uh, but your word says that you accomplish your purpose not by the might or power of men, but rather by your spirit. And so accomplish your good purposes this morning by your word and your spirit. For the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of my favorite films, and this may reflect poorly upon me, uh, is a British uh, crime comedy named Snatch. And it's about a diamond uh, that has been stolen. And it's about the different groups of criminals, both uh, uh, mafioso types as well as small-time criminals that are vying to get this particular diamond. And in the midst of this, there is this seemingly unimportant encounter that takes place. Uh, One of the main characters is a guy by the name of Turkish. And uh, Turkish wants to get uh, big in the boxing game. That's how he wants to kind of make his money. And he realizes that his caravan or his mobile home is starting to fall apart. And so he sends his uh, little minion, Tommy. Tommy is not so bright. Uh, But Tommy has been dispatched uh, to get a caravan or what we would call a mobile home, or an RV. And he's dispatched to a group of people known as the Pykes. Now, we have no knowledge of these people, and thankfully Turkish, as he narrates the story, explains a little bit about who the Pykes are, and they are Irish gypsies. And so take what you know about gypsies, and make them Irish. (laughs) They're people who are very mobile. They're, they always seem to be one step ahead of the law, and that seems to be true in this case as well. Um, they don't fit in. They're looked down upon by everybody else, and uh, they talk funny. As Turkish mentions, it's, what they speak is not quite Irish and it's not quite English, and so people have a hard time understanding exactly what they say, as, long, as well as a rather different sort of accent. It's almost a different dialect and a different accent thrown in, and so the Brits had a hard time underst- have a hard time understanding the Pikes. This plays into what I'm about to say, so don't worry about it. Tommy shows up to find identify and purchase a caravan and he meets Mickey the leader of the pikeys and one of the things that they do he says as they're about to get into a caravan and talk business is Mickey says "You like dogs and Tommy's like dogs do you like dogs and he points at a dog and he goes oh dogs yeah I like dogs, but I like caravans better. Well, as it turns out, he not only gets the caravan, he gets a dog in this bargain. Thrown in, just for good measure, um, the dog which lasts far longer than the caravan. (laughs) Okay, right now you're probably going, why in the world is Steve talking about this? It's that question. Do you like dogs? Uh, Jesus is going to meet a dog in this text and for me that's really the question how does Jesus feel about dogs not dogs in the sense of the little four-legged animals uh, but dogs in, in the sense of people who are unwanted who are scary and unacceptable and we're gonna fill that out as we go along this morning and so who are the dogs of Jesus's culture Oh, Why am I even talking about this? Well, as we see, uh, Jesus has had this uh, latest engagement with the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus and uh, in, in the scribes and Pharisees had a, had a stark disagreement as to the source of uncleanliness, the source of defilement that, that takes place. And Jesus, it says, then departs and goes away to the region of Tyre. Now, some manuscripts say Ancidon, and uh, Matthew's Gospel also includes Sidon, But Tyre, Tyre, not a place we're usually familiar with. Uh, Tyre is a city that is about 35 miles to the northwest of uh, where Jesus was in the, by Ga- in the Sea of Galilee. Um, that's the city, but there's also the region, the district, so to speak, which would be uh, the legal district for the Romans, that's about 22 miles of a walk from where Jesus was to where he is. Uh, but Tyre was a city on the Mediterranean. Tyre as a group uh, was uh, at one point an incredible important ally uh, for David and Solomon. A lot of the building supplies for the temple that Solomon built came from Tyre, the, the cedars of Lebanon. If you want to think about where it is geographically besides the little map we showed, uh, Lebanon. A lot of the skilled workers came from Tyre uh, by agreement between um, David and then Solomon and the king of Tyre. So they had a good relationship for quite a while, but then it went south. And they became very much enemies. And so it's there Jesus goes. (laughs) Sort of an odd choice of a place for Jesus to go. Uh, We're not sure why he goes to Tyre. Uh, Is he avoiding more conflict with the Pharisees and scribes because uh, it was getting a little heated and his time had not yet come? Is that how we're to understand this? Is this Jesus has to leave the district in order to find some time to be alone with his disciples like he intended? What's going on here? We're not sure. Mark doesn't tell us, uh, but Mark is really focusing on the thematic development of this. This is an extension of Jesus' discussion or debate or disagreement with the scribes and Pharisees about what is clean and unclean and therefore who is clean or unclean. And so Jesus goes to a region that is unclean because it's a Gentile region. And here, even though he he goes into a house and he hopes to have some privacy and some freedom, somehow this woman hears about Jesus, this woman shows up at the house. This woman who was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Let's note the differences between Matthew's account in Mark's account, you've you've got a little chart at the end of your sermon notes uh, that explains a, a lot of these things. Uh, both of these <clears throat> authors have a shared worldview. Uh, they also have these shared experiences, but what they're doing is they're communicating these shared things to people who are different. And Matthew is communicating to a largely Jewish audience that is within. The Promised Land. Uh, people who were there at the time of Jesus. Whereas Mark is communicating to a ge- primarily Gentile audience way over in Rome. And so uh, that explains some of the differences that are found here. And one of those differences is Matthew says that she's a Canaanite woman. And she was. It's a general it's a general word that is used for people who lived in that land, in that region, in that place, but it's not necessarily a word that would communicate much to the Roman audience of Mark. And so he is more specific when he calls her a Syrophoenician by birth. There were also the Libyo Phoenicians. So if you look at world history, the people of Tyre, some of of those Phoenicians moved to the north coast of Africa and formed what became Carthage. And so you have your Libyan Phoenicians and your Syro-Phoenicians, and for the Romans, he's clarifying which group for them. So now we know who she is. She's a Canaanite woman, which Canaanite, not supposed to trust those people. She's not only that, but she is a Syrophoenician woman, old adversary, old grudges die hard sometimes. She's a woman from an unclean people. She's a woman living in an unclean land. She is everything that the Pharisees would have avoided. In fact, while we don't find this in Mark, In Matthew's gospel, we find that the disciples were begging Jesus to send her away. Get rid of her. Be done with her. She, surely, Jesus, is not worth your time and your attention. You have better things to do than to deal with this woman and this woman's problems. And probably in the midst of that is still some prejudice they had concerning the Canaanites. The Gentiles. Not just unclean, we find in other places where, particularly in Ephesians 2, where Paul spells some of this out that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And so there's not just you're different, but there's alienation involved in this, animosity involved in this. They were strangers, Paul says, to the covenants of promise. And as a result, they had no hope, and they were without God in the world, and that's this woman. She's alienated, and she's a person who has no hope in this world. And as we're going to see, she has a big problem, but we're going to get there. It's in Jesus' response to her that Jesus now says that he is not to throw the kids' food to the dogs. That word bread there, it can be used for meal, it can be used for food generally. But here's the point. You you don't just take the plate of the child and toss it out and give it to the dogs. It's a waste of a meal. It's an interesting phrase. It's not one that we would normally use. Gentiles were, a, in their culture, it, some of them had dogs as pets, or dogs that would be within the family compound, at the very least. Uh, generally smaller dogs, but Jews generally did not have dogs as pets. Different cultures look at dogs differently. For instance... We have two dogs. And we had a different dog when we lived in Florida. And when we had our daughter born, uh, the first thing we did when we came home was we took her car seat, and uh, we put it on the ground, and we let Huckleberry come over and sniff her out. And then they were best buddies until he died. And some of my fondest memories are just watching my daughter just crawl all over that dog, who was just so patient with her, and it was just amazing. She'd just lay on him and relax, and it was great. When we adopted Eli, the first time he saw Huckleberry, who was the kindest, gentlest, most patient dog in the entire universe, he just saw the size of this beast and was frightened. Eli came from a culture where dogs were not pets. Dogs were not in the house. The dogs were something completely different. In fact, I was watching one of these wet market videos not too long ago, around the time that the coronavirus crisis started, and uh, much to uh, my shock and dismay, even though, even though you know it's true, you don't want it to be true, and there you see dogs getting ready to be roasted for dinner. That's not the only thing. You did see the bats and snakes and all kinds of other strange animals available in their butcher shops, basically. Jews were like Eli. They didn't like dogs. Gentiles more like my daughter. Love them to death. We see dogs in the Old Testament sometimes as an insult. In fact, uh, Goliath says in 1 Samuel 17, Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. We see in Philippians 3 that this phrase, dogs, is used of false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then we see, of course, in Revelation 22, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so dogs were used, uh, the phrase dogs were used for people who were unclean, unfit to be in God's kingdom. Why were they so seen? Uh, why was this a, a word that is used to describe them, uh, that dogs were scavengers? They ate carcasses, and therefore dogs were considered unclean, and why would you have an animal that is considered unclean that would make you unclean within your household? You stay away from them. The Gentiles were unwanted, unacceptable in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, and therefore many of the Jews of that day. And they knew it. Today we sort of experienced that yesterday. No, not yesterday. Friday, I had to make a run to Lowe's and pick up some stuff, and I'm standing there waiting for something to come from the back room, and I'm watching people walk by me like this. (laughs) Like, I could kill them. And it's just weird for you to think of other people afraid of you. Uh, Not because you're doing anything menacing. Not because you look like a, I don't look like a serial killer, do I? Uh, You know, (laughs) thanks, Rick. I appreciate the encouragement right there. (laughs) Um, But simply because I'm there within their six-foot radius Gentiles were dangerous simply because they were Gentiles. Dogs. And so Gentiles were considered unclean and unacceptable by the Pharisees and by extension, most Jews of that day. So how did Jesus respond to this particular dog that came to him seeking mercy? She breaks these social boundaries because she has a very important reason and Mark tells us that very important reason because he, he starts up front whose little daughter had an unclean spirit she's possessed and as a parent this woman is in misery because her child is in misery My children have not been possessed by evil spirits, but I know the misery of a parent. The hardest days are me when I have, is when I have to bring Eli to surgery. And my son has had a number of surgeries, and I suffer with him. I don't suffer in the same way he suffers, but it is emotionally difficult for me. Uh, to be there and to, to experience that helplessness like this woman experienced. There's nothing she can do to fix this problem. She wants her child to be well. And many of us have had that experience. And so that's why she's there. But she doesn't just show up. She fell down at his feet. She begs him to cast the demon out. And so uh, Mark is using two different words for the same thing. Uh, one is the unclean spirit, the, the spirit that defiles, uh, and the other one is demon. So we know it's a demonic spirit, not simply, I don't know, what else would defile you, but it's clarifying it. These parallel terms are used to fill out the, our understanding of this. But what I really want us to, no- to note here is how unbecoming her behavior would appear to be she's humiliating herself in a sense she's walking up to a stranger who's a rabbi who's jewish even though she's gentile and she's throwing herself at his feet she's begging him it wasn't just hey i got this little problem my daughter possessed by a demon do you mind casting it out No, her desperation is on display for everyone around to see. She is making something of a scene, and I can sort of understand why the disciples are a little uncomfortable with this. But in reality, what we're also seeing is she is participating in some form of worship. Uh, The idea that she is falling at his feet is also connected to worship. She's coming. Out of her desperation, she's paying homage to the one person that she believes can do something. She is in stark contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes who thought so little of Jesus. They pointed their fingers at Jesus. They complained about Jesus. They tried to run Jesus off. They tried to discredit Jesus. And here is this woman who seemingly would do that very thing because he's a Jewish rabbi, but she falls at his feet and honors him as the one man who can do something about her problem. This Gentile woman, this supposed dog, this person esteems Jesus when the scribes And the Pharisees disparaged him. Now, Jesus' first response is a little shocking to us. Even the dogs, sorry, let the children be fed first. Then the dogs. Israel was the priority in his earthly ministry. That's what he said. That's what he did. Most of his time was spent in Israel, but not all of his time, as we'll see in just a moment. But this, this really kind of brings us to this focal point, this important question. Is he going to exclude her like the Pharisees would? Or, also in keeping with the larger context of the, the uh, Gospel of Mark, remember? Think back. Verse 1, Jesus, the Son of God, who also claimed to be a Son of God. Caesar claimed to be a Son of God. Where is this going? The people who are in Rome, where are they used to? They're used to Caesar subjugating people outside of his own community. Is Jesus going to subjugate her like Caesar? Is he just seeing her as a, you know, is he seeing Tyre as another place to conquer and to oppress? or is he going to see it as a place to serve and these people as people to love? He seems to put her off. He he seems to treat her just like the Pharisees would, and yet she replies to him, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, Jesus, I'm not looking for a whole meal. Jesus, I just want a crumb. Surely there's enough for the children of Israel. And there's a crumb for me. Surely, Jesus. Jesus affirms her words, and by extension, I believe, her faith. And he says, the demon has left your daughter. Just like that. He doesn't have to get up and go to the house. He doesn't have to lay hands. He doesn't have to recite any sorts of uh, incantations or anything like this. He doesn't even have to be physically present there. We don't know how far away her house was. Jesus never leaves the house he's in, but he says, go, the demon has left your daughter. Distance exorcism. Takes place. Now, this might be a crumb, but it sure didn't feel like a crumb to this woman. This was life. This is receiving, in a sense, her daughter back from the dead. And this is great news to Mark's audience in Rome, because we see a Jesus who shows mercy. Without any care for their race or their background. We see that the Abrahamic promise from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is being fulfilled. Israel had forgotten that they would be blessed so they could bless. And we see, of course, that Jesus, according to Paul, is the seed of Abraham, the, the promised one who is going to come, and he himself is the one who brings blessings to the nations. So when we think about some of the differences between Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, one of the, the, the drum beats in Matthew's gospel is it starts off with Jesus, the son of Abraham, and the son of David. Okay. He's the Messiah. That we've been waiting for. He's also the promised seed. And he is the one who's going to bring a blessing to the nations. And so. Uh, what Matthew is dealing with. Is people who were afraid of the Gentiles. And having to explain to them that Jesus. Is the blessing to the nations. Or the Gentiles. Not just to the Jews. Mark. Mark writing to Gentiles predominantly, is reminding them you don't have to be Jewish for Jesus to love you. Right? See how, it, uh, how it's very different based on the audience? Uh, Mark is addressing the people who kind of wonder, can I be accepted by this Jesus? Because I'm a dog. And Mark says, Yes. There's a place at the table for you. The Abrahamic promise is fulfilled. We see this promise related again in Isaiah 42, the ministry of the the servant. Uh, It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by my hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations. And so... While Jesus' primary ministry during his earthly ministry was to the people of Israel, he is also a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. This is a function that we see from Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, not just Israel. And his mercy is over all that he has made. We see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 10 in the ministry of Peter. He read the first part where it talks about the food. He has the vision of the food, and, and he's like, That's unclean. I can't eat that. And God says to him repeatedly, Do not call unclean what I have called clean. But it's not about lunch. It's about the Gentiles who are about to knock on the door and invite Peter to come into the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel to them. And so again, there's this connection of the food and then the free offer of the gospel to the Gentiles uh, that is in Acts 10 and right here in Mark 7. Because we go from the whole question of food and hands washing to this Gentile woman. We see this reflected in the ministry of Paul. He says in Romans 1, this this famous passage about the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and now here's my point, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you look at Paul's ministry style and and his uh, missionary journeys, what do you find? He went to the Jews first. He found a synagogue or he found the place of prayer where the Jews were meeting. He made known the the message of the fullness of Messiah as Jesus Christ. And then when they rejected him and the message, he would go to the Gentiles, where he usually found far more receptive audience. This message is good news to us as unclean dogs, a.k.a. Gentiles, that we too can find mercy at the feet of Jesus. And so Jesus loves dogs, or dogs, but ones that look for mercy. But where do you go when you feel unworthy? See, this this unnamed woman... When Jesus mentions the dogs, he, she does not dispute Jesus' use of dog. She doesn't get offended that he calls her essentially a dog. She basically is affirming that she's a dog, <laughs> that, um, that she was unclean that she was unworthy, that she, in and of herself, is unacceptable. But it's faith that drives her to seek this Jesus for the deliverance and the well-being of her daughter. Her daughter! Usually these miracles are associated with sons, not daughters, but Jesus has mercy on this woman and her daughter. Grace is also no respecter. Of gender. By faith she received Jesus's word that she was not deserving, that she was not entitled to mercy. Many in Rome probably felt worthless in the eyes of the Jews that were around them, who ostracized them, who kept so proper social distancing of their own form. But they also most likely felt unworthy in the eyes of the Roman citizens, particularly in the eyes of the Roman elite. Remember, not everyone living in Rome is Roman. Not everyone was a citizen. There was, it was a stratified, stratified community. And if you weren't a citizen and part of the elite, you were kind of just fodder for their benefit. See, things haven't changed. This is nothing new. If you feel unworthy, that sense of unworthiness shouldn't keep you away from Jesus. The other day I was uh, I'm reading a biography of Jeremiah Burroughs, who's one of the great Puritans, and um, one of my favorite Puritans. As, but as I said to someone this week, not my favorite Puritan, that's Thomas Boston, always will be, and not just because of his last name. Uh, but Jeremiah Burroughs is one of, one of my favorites, so, and I was on my hammock reading, enjoying a day that it wasn't 90 yet, or 100. And this is an interesting book, uh, bear with me for a moment. Uh, One of my friends is in the acknowledgments, as he he was one of the people who proofread the book for the author. So I was like, cool. And then uh, later on the book, uh, some of the names he mentions, uh, the author mentions, uh, are people that I know. One of them is a guy I went to seminary with, and um, we both had a shared love for Puritans. Um, He's now like, you know, Mr. Puritan, um, and republishes a lot of Puritan books so his name may be familiar to you. Um, But then on that same page he mentioned mentioned John Gerstner. And that just took my brain down this road. Um, I've met John Gerstner. He came in and taught one of uh, R.C.'s seminars uh, one day because he was in town, so R.C., of course, let John come in and lead the class, and I was in the class, and all this stuff, and I started thinking of all of the great churchmen and theologians I've met over the years. Uh, You know, uh, I was tongue-tied when I met John Piper, you know. um, It's almost like when a guy meets a beautiful girl, it's like that, Um, you know working with RC and interacting with him at times and never really knowing what to say. And uh, I remember one time, in, I think it was LA, going up in an elevator with him in Vesta, and just an idiot, and I didn't know what to say. <laughs> Did you have a nice drive? <laughs> Meeting, uh, in particular, you know, knowing Sinclair Ferguson, because we were in the same denomination for a while, and seeing him at General Synod and having friends and, and walking with him, and never feeling worthy to interact directly with him, as though it was about what I had to offer him, which is nothing. I, I can't offer someone like Sinclair Ferguson or R.C. Sproul um, incredible insights from the scriptures that they don't have. I, I can't offer them uh, incredible insights in theology uh, as though they haven't read it and thought about it. and. And I I always felt sort of unworthy in their presence. Much like this woman. Um, What do I have to offer? And it kept me quiet. Some of my classmates would not be quiet. (laughs) Uh, And they were bold and they asked questions of them personally and uh, things like that. And I tended to keep to the corners. Quiet and out of sight with uh, those, those guys, not other professors, but particularly with those guys. Feeling unworthy is just a reflection of who we really are. It's not really about what we offer to the other person. It's what that person can offer us. And I should have asked Sinclair Ferguson questions because I respect him not simply as a theologian. I respect him as a human being and a man, because he seems to be a godly man. Yes, he sins. <laughs> but I thought, I think that I could have learned much about being a godly pastor from St. Clair-Ferguson. And I robbed myself of this. And some people rob themselves of Jesus because they allow their sense of inferiority and their sense of unworthiness. um, And it's not about your sense of inferiority or worthiness. It's about your need. Jesus is not impressed by us. (laughs) and He doesn't have to be. He condescends to be kind to us. Jesus loves the dogs of the world. He recognizes that that we don't deserve mercy. But part of what it talks about in saving faith is apprehending the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so it's the recognition that we need mercy, we don't deserve mercy, but it's found in abundance in Jesus. Jesus. And and faith brings us to Jesus, the fountain of mercy. She was persistent in her faith, this woman. Jesus didn't change his mind, but rather he's testing the sincerity of her faith. In Mark, it's the faith that's implicit. In, In Matthew, he draws it out clear for us. Great is your faith, Jesus says to her, before he says, go It has been done for you as you desired. For Jesus, it's not our worthiness that matters. For Jesus, it's this thing called faith that matters. That the unacceptable people who come to him by faith find acceptance and covering for their unacceptability. Let's stop for a second. Who are the dogs in our culture? Who are the people we're afraid of? Who are the people that we think are beyond hope? That would be different, I think, depending on your age and your background and things like that. Um, Some of you think Patriots fans are beyond hope. Yes, thank you, brother. Some of us think Yankee fans are beyond hope. No, I have, some, I have some great friends who are Yankees fans. But in our culture, we might think that homosexuals are beyond hope. We might think that transgender people are um, unacceptable and beyond hope. Uh, some people are racist and think that people of a particular background are beyond hope, and unacceptable, and to be kept away from. And what we find in the gospel is that it is Christ who makes people acceptable. And there are certain things, like sins and sinful patterns, that Jesus goes about changing. And then there are some things that can never change, that don't matter. They might be unacceptable to certain people, but they don't really matter to Jesus. Okay? Your sex doesn't matter to Jesus. Your ethnic background doesn't matter to Jesus. Am I saying something crazy? Of course not. That's what we find in Galatians. That's what we find in Colossians. There's neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek, right? Right? But the gospel covers sin. and The gospel removes the unworthiness. And the unworthy sinner finds that they are accepted and adopted by grace into Jesus' family. And so we remain dogs no more. Jesus doesn't keep us as a pet, but those unacceptable people become part of his bride. Humble delight is what should fill us. And so faith looks to Jesus despite our unworthiness. Well, in that silly movie that I started with, that dog that survived after the caravan fell apart was a really annoying dog because it kept going back to the gypsies. And it had this um, uh, crazy desire to eat everything, including toys. Seems rather insignificant, except at one point, this crazy, stupid, annoying dog ate the diamond that everyone was looking for. (laughs) Unknown uh, to his uh, unwitting and annoyed owners. And so the two guys who really weren't looking for the diamond in the first place, they're the only guys in the whole movie who weren't looking for the stupid diamond, are the ones who get the diamond in the end when they discover the diamond in the belly of the dog with the squeaky toy that kept making the noise. (laughs) That dog enriched them in ways that they didn't ever thought it would. Jesus considers the dogs that he saves by grace to be his special treasure. His special possession. His body, his bride. Jesus disregards the way the world estimates your worth. It's not about what you can do for Jesus. He doesn't love only the lovable. He doesn't see us and he doesn't see other people as people to be avoided or people to be conquered with the sword, but rather a people to be loved, to be shown mercy, to be showered with his grace. Do you embrace your need and go to Jesus with it? Do you recognize their need and point them to Jesus for it? Jesus loves to show mercy to dogs like us. What a great Savior we have. Why don't we pray? Father, I thank you that you included this story not just in Mark, but also in Matthew, so that we get the point. And it's a double-edged point. We are acceptable only in Christ. And in Christ, anybody is acceptable to you. Help us to live that. Help us to get off that treadmill of trying to prove our worth to you. Help us to give up our demands that other people meet our approval. Help us to rest in the mercy that's found in Jesus. As hard as that can be for us. Father, we confess that we live in a culture that's constantly evaluating people and who's in and who's out. And we just take that upon ourselves as a function of our sinfulness. And I ask you to set us free. That we'd stop thinking that way. Stop worrying about whether we fit in and whether we're going to allow someone else in. Help us to, to think of these things as Jesus thinks of these things. Renew our minds in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.